Good morning, Red Tree Church. It is so good to be with you guys. I'm excited to continue on in our prayer series. Last week, Craig kept us going. It was really, really good. If you haven't gotten a chance uh, to engage the stuff we've been going through for the last few weeks, I would encourage you, jump on live on the YouTube channel or on the church app and listen to those sermons or watch those sermons and kind of keep caught up. The, the discussion we've been having is really, really cool. Essentially, where we've been so far is uh, we're doing this series on prayer in the life of the believer, and we kind of structured it off of the lines of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. So the first week we talked about this idea of God as our good Father who knows us and knows what we need. And so we're the parable of the persistent widow and this idea that we can come to God over and over and over and that he's ready to hear us and that we can't annoy him with our requests. The second week we talked about this idea of God's will being done, that that being part of our prayer life, praying for God's will to be accomplished here on earth. And so we spent time talking about Jesus as the true vine and how we abide in him and how something about abiding in Christ sinks up our will to his will. Last week, Craig took us through this idea of daily bread and how our prayers should be, should be uh, woven together with the daily course of our life, the daily needs and thoughts and concerns of our life. He read out of 1 Timothy 2 and this idea that our prayers for the world around us, for leaders and authorities and friends and neighbors and the way we engage the world around us in prayer is part of this daily need, daily dependence on God and part of how we engage in his call to be disciple makers. So today, we're continuing on in the prayer, and the line is this. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. What an interesting line. I think what Jesus is telling us is that forgiveness for ourselves and for others is a vital part of our prayer life. So we're going to zone in on that idea today. What is biblical forgiveness? What is kind of gospel-centric forgiveness? What does Jesus teach about forgiveness? And then how does that speak into how we understand our prayer life? And guys, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, we're, we're going to jump into a, a relatively hard teaching of Jesus. And, and I don't know how aware you are of this, but, but Jesus' teachings on forgiveness in general are pretty intense. He says stuff like, the measure you use will be used against you. If you forgive, my father will forgive you. Like that's the kind of stuff Jesus says when he speaks about forgiveness, it's usually pretty intense and pretty heavy. And so how we understand that and how we connect that back to our understanding of prayer, I think it's gonna be a hard discussion for some of us, but I also think it's gonna be a really fruitful discussion. So. Go ahead, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read a text today. Um, this actually takes place right after a really famous text where Jesus describes kind of this escalating form of confrontation as a way of engaging hurt or broken relationship within the church. But, but we're picking up right at that. This is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. We read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, him being Jesus, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this beloved is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Jesus, as we take a few minutes to jump into this text, we ask spirit that you would be our interpreter. We ask that you would speak your truth to us, that we would not only understand the story and understand the teaching here intellectually, that it would make sense, but that you would cut through to our hearts. You would cut through to our practice. God, you would cut through to the broken relationship and the bitterness and hurt and unforgiveness that sits in our heart and stews and poisons us away from you and away from your kingdom. God, I know that for all of us who struggle and wrestle with bitterness and forgiveness, that this will not be a pleasant experience to think on these things. But Spirit, you are such a gentle counselor. I ask that you would draw up these painful things in our hearts in ways that we need, in ways that we can endure, that invite us to real repentance and real change, that we might glorify you with our hearts and find intimacy with you in our prayers. And ultimately, that we might be effective workers for your kingdom. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to walk back through this story from Jesus and point out a couple things to kind of help us contextualize and understand what's going on. Ultimately, I think that's going to lead us to a really clear but really hard truth from Jesus, which I think is going to give us some space to step back and really think about how that applies and what that says about our understanding of prayer. So 
let's let's jump into this. Before we get to the actual story, the setup is that Peter comes and talks to Jesus and asks him about forgiveness. Remember, this is right after this kind of famous passage where Jesus talks about interpersonal conflict and people wronging each other within the church and how they kind of work through that. So right on the tail end of that, how the church handles personal conflict, Peter approaches Jesus and takes the same concept and makes it just a little more personal. He asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone for the same offense? Essentially saying, if someone wrongs me and I forgive them and they claim repentance and we're reconciled, everything you just said, and then the same thing happens, how many times should I go through that cycle before I break off relationship with them and step away? Up to seven times? Now, it's interesting, right? Because we can kind of read Jesus or read Peter here as this kind of like, legalistic kind of answer, like he's counting and keeping track of how often and how much he'll forgive someone. But what's interesting to note is that Peter believes he's being incredibly gracious and godly in this response. The standard rabbinic teaching in this day was that if someone brought the same offense, same sin to you multiple times after three rounds of forgiveness and repentance and restoration, you should cut off all relationship and contact. By upping the number to seven, this kind of sacred number in Judaism, Peter probably feels like he's being very gracious and very over the top in his generosity and in his forgiveness. And I love Jesus's answer. He completely bursts Peter's bubble. When Peter suggests the whole seven thing, Jesus basically says, uh, no, not seven. How about 77 times? And, and really quick, I don't want to bog us down with the nuance of language here, but Essentially, what's behind what Jesus is saying is not that we should be so legalistic, right? That we have an exact ledger and we know how close we are to 77 times of forgiveness. What Jesus is saying by using this language is you should not be counting how many times you forgive your brother or sister for the same offense. But by using this language of 77 times, what Jesus is essentially saying here is you never stop forgiving. You never reach that point. You always forgive. Always. Now, before we go any farther, I think it's important to note that that gospel truth has radical and intense implications in the life of the believer. I've been a pastor long enough and I've known you guys long enough to know that even as I say that, some of you are already squirming in your seats. And I want to say this really clearly. I wish we had time to really, really dig into the Bible's teaching on bitterness and vengeance and forgiveness and reconciliation. We did a short series on that a few years ago. And today, we're really just going to kind of scratch the surface on this beautiful biblical teaching. But before we go on, I need you to zone in with me and hear this. What the Bible teaches about forgiveness does not mean that someone's sin does not have consequences. I need you to hear that. 
I need you to reflect on that because I have seen examples where abusive and destructive and dangerous people have distorted Jesus's radical teaching on forgiveness and said, you must forgive me for what I've done to you. Therefore, you cannot put barriers or boundaries in our relationship. You cannot guard yourself against my potential sin or violence in the future. To do so would be to not forgive. Beloved, do not fall for that lie. Forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences to actions. Forgiveness does not mean that people who choose grievous and destructive and violent sin do not have broken relationship. Forgiveness is about a posture of the heart. It has to do with how your heart understands justice and God and the person who did the wrong. So again, we don't have time to dig into all the nuances of that, but I need to make sure we start with that truth. What we are talking about today specifically is a posture of the heart. It has to do with how we hold someone in spiritually, emotionally to their sin, not necessarily to physical, literal, or relational boundaries that may or may not need to be put into place. What I would say is this, if you are a person who is wrestling with bitterness or struggles in the area of sin and forgiveness, I would ask you to not be in this alone. Because some of the teaching we're going to talk about today is probably going to trigger some stuff for you. And I would just say this, if you are in the throes of working through bitterness and vengeance and forgiveness and reconciliation, please invite your church family into that. I would love to be in that with you to help you work through the nuances and specifics. But for our purpose today, we need to step back to this larger truth that Jesus teaches a radical forgiveness. A radical forgiveness that says you never give up on someone. You never reach a point where forgiveness is no longer an option. Not seven times, but 77 times. And then Jesus tells us this amazing story about a king who needs to settle accounts, his business accounts, right? So he gets out his account books and he begins to go through all his debtors and have them brought to him and work through what are payment plans and who owes me this and what needs to happen. And as this is going on, a guy is brought to the king who it turns out owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, I'm sure we can all guess from context clues that that's a large amount of money, but let me give us just kind of a little window into exactly what Jesus is talking about here, right? So a talent of silver, which was kind of the most common measurement of money that would use the word talent in Jesus's day, represented about 6,000 denarius. A denarius was one day's wages for a laborer. Now keep in mind, in that day, you didn't necessarily have factory work, assembly line work, the 40-hour work week. A worker could expect to earn three, four, sometimes five denarius in a week, but it wasn't like you got consistent, got my shift every day, got a denarius every day. So, so what, what we're talking about here is an average worker could expect somewhere between 12 and 20 denarius a month. 
So a talent represented about 40 years of wages for the average worker. This guy owes over 400,000 years of wages. A lot of stinking money. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars using kind of our language and our monetary system. All right, Jesus was familiar with hyperbole. The amount of money this guy owes is ludicrous to the point of being almost comical, right? This would be like if someone was telling a story today and they said, oh, you know, like a billion trillion dollars, right? Like this is such a large amount of money that it's nonsensically huge, right? So the king looks at his book and he sees this massive disparity and he orders this man and his family to be sold into slavery and have everything they own liquidated to start to pay off the debt. Now, really quick, this is actually an act of mercy in this day because uh, this guy and his family being sold into slavery at least gives them the opportunity to work and earn wages and begin paying down the debt. He could have had the dude thrown in debtor's prison. Uh, and in debtor's prison, basically, his extended family would have to work to pay off the debt for him. But look, look at this dude's response. It says, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He says, have patience with me and I'll pay you the debt back. That's insane. I mean, this guy is desperate, right? But if he's not, he's at least delusional. There's no world where this guy could ever pay back the debt he has. It would literally take hundreds of lifetimes of wages to pay back this debt. But, but look at the text. Out of pity for him. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. This Lord has his big old books open and he is going through and clearing accounts and he sees this man hopelessly destroyed and weighed down by his debt and he looks at his ledger and he looks at the man and moved by pity he forgives the debt. This is already a beautiful story, and hopefully you can already see the gospel themes. We have a debt before God that we could never repay, and in his love and mercy, he chooses to forgive the debt. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful gospel. What an amazing Jesus we serve. But the story continues. See, the servant, obviously shaken by the event, goes and finds someone who owes him money, about a hundred denarii. Now, that's not an insignificant debt. Remember what we talked about earlier. You're talking about months of wages. I mean, this could be anywhere between like 15 and, and even like $40,000 in our day. This is, this is a no small debt. And so the servant begins to choke this other servant and demand that he pay him back. And this other servant does something familiar. The text says, 
his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you back. This is the exact language the first servant used with the master. But look at his response. He looks at his books and his ledger and he looks at this servant and he looks back and forth and he has this man thrown in debtor's prison, which is a real expression of cruelty. In this day, if you were thrown in debtor's prison, you would not be released until you paid off the debt, but you were in prison. You couldn't work. So essentially, you were being held captive until your friends or family paid off your debt. At least if you were sold into slavery, you could work and pay the debt off. In debtor's prison, you were simply stuck. Now, this part of the story is disturbing. We intrinsically sense the injustice at this, right? Well, this guy's co-workers do as well. They report his atrocious behavior, and he's called back to face the Lord. Look at the language the master has for this servant now. This is verse 32. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You wicked servant. A wicked servant. Should have shown the mercy you were shown. What does he do? He throws that wicked servant into the same debtor's prison that he had his friend thrown into. On the one hand, as far as stories go, this is kind of this sweet justice. But it's made really disturbing by Jesus' final comment on the story. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is sharp language. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I would love to dull this right now. I want to, to reassure us in this passage. Maybe our sweet Jesus made these words in hyperbole and maybe we need to just go and like focus on assurance of salvation and things like that. But church, hear this. Jesus spoke sharply here on purpose and we would do this text in injustice if we didn't allow these words to cut us a bit. Beloved, do you see the difference in the response of the two main characters of this parable. The Lord in this story looks at his ledger and looks at the servant and has mercy. The servant looks at his ledger and looks at his coworker and he demands justice. 
The Lord sees the debt and sees the person and chooses the value of humanity and relationship over balanced scales and money. The servant sees the debt and sees the person and chooses the satisfaction of getting what is rightfully his. The Lord takes his ledger and casts it aside. The debtor or the servant grasps tightly to his ledger and casts aside the person. I do not want to dull the sharpness of Jesus's words for us because this story so starkly highlights how insanely out of sync this servant is from his Lord. They are fundamentally oriented in conflicting ways. This Lord has chosen relationship over good business. He has chosen humanity over justice. The servant has chosen material goods over humanity. What is his over who is in front of him? The image of the story of the Lord's anger in sending the servant to jail as a punishment. And by the way, like I, I don't wanna like diminish the reality of divine judgment or those things, but, but, but it's, it's important to actually remember, right? The hyperbole and the storytelling that's going on here. It, what I'm saying is this, it would be really easy to look in the end at kind of the anger of the Lord in the story and see this somehow as God being spiteful toward us when we are sinful and, and just having this like spiteful vengeance. But that would, that would cast aside the whole purpose of the story. Rather, I want us to be struck by the reality that a heart, hear this, a heart that grasps tightly to the ledger is so out of alignment with the heart of our God that that heart cannot truly experience the heart of God. Do you hear that? The anger of the master casting the servant out is not some kind of spite. It's not some kind of, well, you're going to get what's coming to you. It's meant to show us that this servant is so out of line with his master that he cannot possibly experience what his master has for him. So his master gives him the world ultimately that he wants. When we, beloved, approach injustice and conflict and sin and broken relationship from this perspective of getting back what is ours and balancing the scales, we should be greatly alarmed at how starkly out of sync this is with our God who has responded to our sinfulness with such mercy. Beloved, if you find yourself clutching to your ledger with a desperate desire for justice and balanced scales, I would ask you to give pause. How? How can you possibly experience the gospel of goodness, the sweetness of our Jesus, and so tightly clutch to that ledger? So, 
what are we to do? Look to Jesus. Look to the Lord in the story. He has cast aside his ledger in favor of the person. But we have to acknowledge a painful truth here. And this is where I think this thing begins to really cut into our hearts. If you want to cast aside the ledger, then someone must absorb the weight of the debt. In order for the Lord in this story to forgive the servant, to cast aside the ledger, to choose humanity over stuff, he must absorb the weight of the debt. He must accept the loss. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, on the cross, Jesus absorbed the weight of our debt. He absorbed the wrong. He took the brunt of the injustice. He looked at the ledger and he looked at us and he chose us. And that choice required that he eat the loss. What wonderful news is the gospel. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph over them in him. Our debt is paid. Our sin has been paid for. Hear this. It didn't just disappear. It didn't just go away. Jesus paid for it. He bore the brunt. He absorbed the wrath. He ate the debt. Beloved, real forgiveness, real reconciliation, the way the Bible talks about it, is only possible when one party is willing to stop the cycle of vengeance and absorb the wrong. At some point, for reconciliation to happen, someone has to eat the loss. Someone has to bear the weight of the injustice. And as long as you clutch to your ledger, as long as you demand what is yours, you will never fully experience reconciliation. Beloved, 
We must die to the entire system of ledgers and tit for tat. We must kill that unmerciful part of ourselves that wants to see those around us pay the price for their sin. Because Think about this. Ultimately, we don't actually want justice. We want justice for others. We want others to pay for their sin, but we want our sins to be passed over and forgotten. This is not how justice works. You either have it or you don't. It's either for everyone or it's not justice. So, I've been going on a little ramble here. Bring this back. How does this actually speak into our prayer life? This idea of, of knowing the gift we've been given and experiencing the forgiveness we've been given through Jesus and through that love and passing it on and giving forgiveness to others, right? This whole idea of just casting aside the leisure and, and choosing love and relationship and people over and above getting what's coming to us. How does that speak into our prayer life. I think the application is right in front of us. Beloved, your prayer should be chocked full of honest confession, consistent confession of real repentance. Think about this. When was the last time you brought that kind of honest and clear confession and repentance to Jesus in your prayers? And, and hear me on this, right? It's not as if he doesn't know the sins you commit. It's not as if you're saying or not saying some specific sin or wrong or injustice in your life affects your salvation, but confession, and I mean, I mean nasty, painful, blunt confession, creates fresh space for you to experience the amazing, radical, wrong-absorbing love of Jesus for you. He absorbed your sin. He ate it. He took the wrath. He took the punishment. He took the weight of it. And he forgave you each and every sin. When you experience this, it opens your heart to giving that same freedom to those in your life who've wronged you. Beloved, let me tell you, Christian Forgiveness is an amazing and powerful expression of God's love to a lost and dying world. When we actually unlock the power of releasing our ledgers and releasing bitterness and vengeance and desires for like reciprocity and actually offer real, loving, merciful forgiveness like has been offered to us, that says something to the world. It's so foreign to the world we live in. 
It shines a spotlight on the radical nature of the gospel. Go back and Google and read the news stories about the Amish school shooting or the Charleston church shooting. The only thing more astounding than the forgiveness given by the victims to the shooters in those two stories is how much radical Christian forgiveness upset the world around them. People did not like how those churches and those communities chose to offer radical Jesus forgiveness in the face of awful injustice. It prickled people and upset people and made them angry. Because we don't, we, we, we don't get Jesus kind of forgiveness in the world we live in. We don't. But beloved, Jesus has done so much for us. He has done so much for us. And when we experience that, when that is fresh in our heart and our soul and our mind, it allows us to give some of the same to the world around us. It gives teeth to the gospel. Beloved, our prayer life and our prayer life of confession and repentance gives teeth to the gospel. It's one of the chief ways that we get to experience the radical forgiveness of Jesus. Look, I'm, I'm not saying that if you can't come up with a detailed list of every sin you do on a daily basis and give it to Jesus, that you're somehow endangering your salvation. What I am saying is that when you bring the raw, the nitty-gritty, the details, the depths of your sin to Jesus continually and regularly, you will experience the beauty of his forgiveness for you. There is no sin that you can bring to Jesus that he will not respond with. I have paid for that. You are forgiven. You are my child. You are my bride. It is gone. I have forgotten about it. I have cast it away. Every sin, every time we confess, every time we come back to him, even habitual sins, even addictive sins, even things we were turned to over and over, our Jesus responds with it is paid for. I took the wrath. I absorbed it. It is gone. I've cast it away. You are forgiven. You are my child. You are my bride. You are my beloved. This is the forgiveness of Jesus every time we come to him. So if you are in this space and you struggle with bitterness, and as soon as I started talking about forgiveness, names and faces and stories and experiences popped in your head. And you know in your heart of hearts that there are people you have not released from your ledger. I want to challenge you to something obvious and something hard. Bring confession to your prayers today. Bring real confession to your prayers right now. In fact, in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And I would encourage you, if you know there is bitterness in your heart, 
Take those elements and set them down in front of you and get on your knees. Yes, in your living room, with your kids there, find a space, get on your knees and bring confession to Jesus. Tell him the depths of your sin. Think about all the little and petty and foolish ways you have sinned against him in the last week, the last two days, this morning. Bring them to him. See what he does. See what he says to you. See how he responds to your confession and your repentance. Beloved, I can tell you, he'll forgive you. He'll love you. He'll have mercy on you. He'll choose you. I can tell you, but it's so much better if you just experience it. And beloved, I'm telling you, the more you experience it, the more you make that a part of your fellowship with God, your fellowship with Christ, the more it will overflow out of you. If you are in this space and you know unforgiveness pulls at your heart and those words of Jesus that so it will be done to you terrify you on some level, I, I, I ask you, bring confession into your prayers. Bring it into your prayers. Right now, today. See how it changes you. See how it changes what you experience and what you think of other people. And beloved, when the church of Jesus begins to forgive like Jesus, I am telling you, the world notices. It draws us together in unity and it declares the goodness of Jesus to a world in desperate need of him. So let's, all of us, right now, set aside some time, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, to bring our confessions to Jesus, to experience his, his forgiveness, and let us become the sort of servants that give the forgiveness we've been forgiven.